BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. We have a uh, special guest. And let me just preface this by saying we have extended an invitation to every single candidate on the Democratic side for president. And we'll see if any of them show up. But uh, our old buddy Bernie Sanders is on the line with us. Uh, Senator Sanders, it's great to have you back with us. I am delighted to show up, Tom. <laughs> Thank you. you know, We're delighted to have I go you. Around, and I want to tell you, as I go around the country, people say, Bernie, I haven't heard you on brunch with Bernie lately. So, yeah. you know, a lot of people remember that, and I'm so happy that we were able to do it. I remember when you first came over to our house and we did that show from our living room. You know, we started the show literally in my living room in, in Montpelier, Vermont. And, and I remember that very well. Yes. Your, your house was on some kind of precipice. I was afraid the house would collapse. <laughs> yes. Yeah. C-SPAN came over and did the whole thing. Anyhow, Donald Trump seems to be raising racism to an art form. This really, really concerns me. And at the same time, I'm getting these emails from FreedomWorks, from this uh, Koch-funded group, talking about how Antifa is like, you know, doing all this violent stuff and political violence has to stop. And, and uh, in fact, I had a, somebody call about it last week and I had no idea what they were talking about. Apparently, this is a huge meme over on Fox News and on the hard right. What are your thoughts on Trump's racism well, and how it's infecting our society? Let me just say a couple of things. And I say this not as a United States senator from Vermont, not as presidential candidate. I say this as an American citizen, and that is, I never in my life would have believed that we would have a president who is an overt racist. Never would have believed that. And it pains me deeply, just as an American, that we have a individual in the White House who hopes to win re-election, not on his policy ideas, not on what he's doing in healthcare, education, or the environment, but simply by dividing the American people up and demonizing certain groups of people based on the color of their skin, based on where they were born, uh, based on their uh, sexual orientation. This is, I mean, just at a very deep level, it is something I never, ever believed that I would live to see. And it is obviously a tragedy for our country. We are seeing an increase in hate crimes, we are seeing an increase in divisiveness. Uh, and I will simply say to you that our campaign, the campaign that I'm running for president, is exactly the opposite of what Trump is trying to do. He is trying to divide the American people up, deflect attention away from the very, very serious problems, whether it's health care or the collapse of the American middle class or poverty or climate change 
or uh, education or student debt, not talk about those issues, simply get us to try to hate each other. And we're going to do the opposite. We're going to bring people together around an agenda that works for all and not just the 1%. But this is a very painful and difficult moment in American history, and I would hope the American people rise up together and say, no, we will not accept this kind of bigotry and racism. Yeah. Other topics here, if you don't mind my bringing up a few. The minimum wage, for example. Two quick thoughts on this. Number one, apparently there were a few Democrats who voted against this bill to raise the minimum wage, even though it had been watered down to make it acceptable to some of the, quote, moderate Democrats. One of them used to be my representative here in Oregon, and he's a Democrat in the House, and he voted no. It's a matter of principle. Don't raise the minimum wage. I don't get this, uh, number one. And number two, on the front page of the Washington Post today, and I didn't read the article, I just read the headline, and so I'd love you to fill me in on this. It looked to me like it was attacking your campaign for not paying a $15 minimum wage to, to workers. And, you know, if you want to respond to that, I, I, sure, I'd, I'd love to hear I it. Let me just follow so, up. Well, that's not true, as a matter of fact. That's what I figured. Let me, yeah, let me get to the first uh, point. And that is, as you know, uh, when I ran for president last time, we raised the issue of if people work in this country 40 hours a week, they should not live in poverty. Uh, they should have a living wage. And that living wage is $15 an hour. And as you recall, Tom, when I talked about that four years ago, it was seemingly a very radical idea, an extreme idea. But I'm really happy to say, because of the work done by the SEIU, the Fight for 15, what we have seen is uh, seven states pass a minimum wage of $15 an hour. And just yesterday, as you mentioned, the Congress, the House of Representatives, voted to raise that minimum wage $15 an hour. And you're right, that legislation was watered down. It takes an extra year to do it. I was not happy about that. My legislation in the Senate would be, I think, a much stronger piece of legislation. The issue right now is that the House has passed the bill. And what Mitch McConnell is doing is not saying, okay, let's have a debate on raising the minimum wage. Now, for Mitch McConnell, who represents a very poor state, the state of Kentucky, if he doesn't want to vote to raise the minimum wage above $7.25 an hour, he has that right. Uh, but he does not have the right as a majority leader to prevent that debate. So the demand that we are making, and we're asking people to write to McConnell to sign the petition that we will be circulating, is to tell McConnell that he has to bring that bill up. If he wants to vote against it, he can explain it to Kentucky. But he has to allow that debate and that vote. Because the truth is, we have tens of millions of people in this country who are working for starvation wages uh, and need a raise, and that's what that bill will do. In terms of my own campaign, I'm proud to say, first of all, as a United States senator, uh, I was the first senator to make sure that everybody who worked for me, including interns, made $15 an hour. We were the first office in the Senate to do that. We were the first campaign in American history. Uh, to recognize the union and, in fact, sign a union contract, which we're working on right now. Not only do our lower-paid workers, our field organizers, uh, make $15 an hour, they also have 100% coverage on their health care. Not too many employers provide that uh, and other very good benefits. The issue we're dealing with, and I can't get into it in detail because we are in the midst of labor negotiations, and it would probably be illegal for me to do that, but the issue we're getting into is that some of our field organizers obviously are going to work 40, more than 40 hours a week. Mm. 
uh, and how we deal with that. We made an offer which would make sure that everybody made at least 15 bucks an hour. That was rejected. We're in the midst of these negotiations, so I can't say more than that. But every worker uh, on our campaign makes 15 bucks an hour with very, very good benefits. The lower-wage workers, 100% health care coverage. So we're proud uh, of how we treat our employees. Great. Meanwhile, the Midwest and the East Coast is suffering under a massive heat wave. It's not bad here in Oregon, but, boy, the rest of the country is really getting whacked. This is happening all over the world. What's the, the story with climate change with regard to the United uh, States Congress the, right now? There are so many issues out there. You know, it's almost hard to determine what's the most important, but I can't help but think that the future of the planet is of some importance, wouldn't you say? Yeah. <laughs> and the kind of planet we leave our kids and, and future generations. And as you just, just mentioned, uh, what we're seeing now, uh, I, if my memory is correct, but this last June was the warmest June on record. That's correct. Uh, I believe, obviously, July is not yet over, that July may be headed that same direction. Uh, that what we have seen is year after year after year, some of the warmest years on record. What we are seeing in the last couple of years are terrible, terrible heat waves and droughts and from Australia to India uh, to Europe to Latin America to the United States. We're dealing with heat waves right now. And what is particularly upsetting, really, really, really upsetting and frightening, is that we have a president who is prepared to sacrifice the lives of future generations in order to protect his friends in the fossil fuel industry. I mean, this is literally beyond comprehension. I don't understand. And I don't understand how we can have people running the coal companies, the oil companies, the gas companies, who keep doing business as usual as they destroy the planet. So what we need to do, and I want to thank the young people out there. They have been playing a great role, the Sunrise folks and, and everybody else. Uh, we have got to demand that we uh, have a leadership in this country, the most powerful nation on Earth, that not only does the right thing in the United States by transforming our energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy, but leads the world. This is not an American issue. This is an issue for every country on Earth. So what the United States has got to do, we need leadership. This is what I will do as president, is demand that countries like China and India and Russia and Brazil, and all the major countries on Earth, all the countries on Earth, come together, and maybe, I know this is a radical uh, vision here, but maybe instead of spending a trillion and a half dollars trying to, uh, on weapons of destruction designed to kill each other, maybe we can use those resources to transform uh, the planet's energy system away from fossil fuel and save the planet uh, for our kids and our grandchildren. This and in the is a global, global crisis. Yeah, and in the process, create millions of jobs. That's right. Many millions of jobs. In the United States, Vermont is a, is a state which has, like many other states, has a lot of older buildings which are completely energy inefficient, waste a lot of energy. We will save people money on their fuel bills. We will create jobs. We will help save the planet. So we need a massive program to make our uh, buildings more energy efficient, Move radical changes in our transportation system. We've got to rebuild or build a first-rate rail system in this country. Uh, and we need to move aggressively to wind, solar, and other forms of sustainable energy. Can we do it? Yeah, we can do it. The engineers, the scientists know what has to be done. What is lacking here uh, is political will. And this lack of political will 
this insanity on the part of the president who thinks that climate change is a hoax. I mean, this is not only endangering our generation. This is the planet and future generations that we are talking about. So uh, we have got to do everything that we can, not only to defeat Trump, but to make it clear that what the fossil fuel industry is doing is absolutely immoral and unacceptable. Amen. I'm curious how Medicare for All is going. You really championed this issue four years ago. It was considered a, a impossible and a fringe issue, and now a number of the presidential nominees or uh, you know, uh, candidates are signing on to it. How's it going? It's going really well. And in fact, again, in, in a period of four years, it's not just transforming the debate over the minimum wage. We have done that with Medicare for All. Look, the American people are catching on that the current system is a dysfunctional system. When we are spending twice as much per capita on health care as do the people of any other country, and yet we have over 80 million Americans who are either uninsured or underinsured with high deductibles and co-payments, when we lose about 30,000 people every single year because they don't go to a doctor when they should, when we are paying by far the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs, you know, in a couple of weeks, it's less than that, on the 28th, uh, in 10 days, I'll be going to Detroit, Michigan, going over the border into Canada with a group of people suffering from diabetes. We're going to purchase insulin for one-tenth of the price in Canada that we're paying here in the United States. How insane is that? Wow. So what this fight is about is taking on the great power, the extraordinary power of the insurance companies and the drug companies who make billions of dollars every year in an irrational and dysfunctional health care system. We need to move to a Medicare for all single-payer system, we need to understand that health care is a human right, not a privilege, not a commodity in which drug companies and insurance companies make billions in profit. Yeah, very, very well said. Senator Bernie Sanders, now candidate for president of the United States on the Democratic side. Senator, I wish you the very best and thank you so much for dropping by today. My pleasure. Thank Great you. talking with you. Right. Senator Bernie Sanders. Hey, you've probably been hearing a lot about CBD oil. I mean, it's been all over the media and the news for years now, and and it's just, but it's just now starting to become available, and it's really great stuff. The brand that Louise and I use is New Leaf Naturals CBD oil. N U Leaf Naturals. Uh, com is their website. And uh, CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. CBD is non-toxic. It has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory pro- properties. And as I said, the brand that we trust the most, New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the United States, and the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's N-U-LeafNaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M. Go to newleaf, N-U-LeafNaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. Tom Hartman here with you, and what do we do? Some uh, remarkable arguments here about the $15 an hour minimum wage are are being made by people on both sides of the argument. We're going to get into that with Charles Sauer in just a moment. I just wanted to lay down a few statistics. Right now, 
general welfare programs, TANF, the food stamps, SNAP, and the earned income tax credit cost federal and state taxpayers about $300 billion a year. About half of that goes to people earning less than $15 an hour who are working. A, if we raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour, we save the federal government $150 billion. If the minimum wage were raised to $15 an hour, it would be $5 lower than it was in 1968 if you were to inflation adjust the numbers. So it doesn't even quite take us back to where we were in the 60s when on a minimum wage job, you could put yourself through college, as many of my friends did. It'll generate $120 billion in higher wages, which means it's going to generate a lot more tax revenue, which you know, either pays down the debt or helps do things, and it stimulates the economy because all those people will have extra money that they will be spending into the economy, which is going to create new jobs. Two-thirds, 67.3% of the working poor would receive a pay increase. Fewer than 10% of them are teenagers. 58% of minimum wage workers in the United States are women. 60% of all minimum wage workers in the United States work full-time. 28% of them have children. Some of the statistics coming out of this new report from the Congressional Budget Office. Anyhow, well, let's let Charles Sauer tell us all about this. Charles is the president of the Market Institute, libertarian economist. His new book, Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do, marketinstitute.org is his website. You can tweet him at Charles Sauer, S-A-U-E-R. Charles, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on. So your argument against or in favor of leaving the minimum wage at $7.25 an hour? Well, if we raise it to 15, it's more of keeping the poor poor and letting the rich get richer, right? Because what we're going to hurt here are the entry-level jobs. We're going to stop my three daughters from getting their first job. But the fact is, is my three daughters aren't going to be stopped because I can afford to pay for an internship. I can afford to put them on a bus. Fewer than 10% of minimum wage workers are teenagers. So, so your daughters are the outliers, so, Charles. Let's talk about no, the, the, the over, larger economy. That 10, that 10% is what becomes the larger economy. More than 50% of minimum wage workers are between 25 and 54. 10% are, are young, are teenagers, and the rest are basically over 50. Yeah, so the graph moves, right, Tom? A, t- a 10-year-old becomes a 20-year-old, and a 20-year-old becomes a 30-year-old. This is what the left forgets. They forget that the graph moves. This is actually what Larry Kotlikoff, who's likely to get a Nobel Prize okay, for his let, work in economics... Larry Kudlow is, so is a hustler. Come on, Charles. Let me, yeah, let me get this straight. Is, I, if if I understand what you're saying... If I understand what you're saying is correct, what you are saying is that if the minimum wage goes to $15 an hour, which is what, 25% lower than it was in 1968. If it goes to 25% less than it was in 1968, that this is somehow going to hurt your daughters. I don't see why. No, it's not going to hurt my daughters. It's because I can afford to put them on a bus. It's where you're keeping the poor poor and the rich richer. No, if they're making 15 bucks an hour, they can afford to get on the bus themselves. And worse than that, this isn't just the first time it came out. Seattle published the report that it cost the minimum wage workers when they actually enacted it. Not an academic exercise, not anything that... uh, The economy uh, grew when they raised the minimum wage. No. Yes. More people have more money in their pocket. It stimulates activity. No, because they lost hours. They lost hours 
And they started at $150, and I was really excited to prove. I mean, it's broken windows. Nobody's excited about these numbers when they're proven in real life. But they revised the number down to $74 that the average minimum wage worker lost. And so we now have another report saying the same thing, and I'm back on talking about it again with you. The fact is is that the numbers and the research and the history all say the same thing, and that's why you started with the numbers you did, because those are outliers, Tom. Those are the outliers. The history is that people lose money when you raise the minimum wage. But I don't even care about that, because the thing that I want the most is for the economy to continue to grow and for poor people to be able to become rich people, and that is the worst part of this plan. Charles, the, the, I think the fundamental issue here, the, the bottom line, what that it page said was lost. that the CBO said that about 1.3 million people would lose their jobs if the minimum wage goes up to $15 an hour. And what I say is if an employer cannot conduct their business paying a, a reasonable wage, a living wage, they have no business being in business in America. Look, there's startups, there's people that might need to pay less, there's entry level employees that maybe they, they shouldn't do that. If you want to go back to feudal times where people were basically indentured servants for years, 20, 30 years before they got to work, I don't, I actually don't know the numbers on that. It was a long time, though. It was over five, under 40. They spent a lot of time learning the profession, and that isn't what we have now. We have people that are actually getting paid. But the more that you raise that number up, the less people that get okay, to here's, learn Okay, here's, here's, I found my page. The, the CBO numbers were that a gradually phased in $15 minimum wage. It's going to create $120 billion in higher wages for 40 million U.S. workers. And, you already read that. Yeah, and, and, it, and, it will, and it will, according to the Congressional Budget Office, it will cause, it'll lose about 1.3, was it, million jobs? But again, are these jobs that we even want, Charles? Yeah, we want jobs. We want people that don't have jobs to have jobs. Only the left doesn't want people to have jobs and to keep them on government government programs that happen to have incentives to further keep them on government programs. The right so the, the government programs that are going case, to people who are making $7.25 an hour or in that neighborhood right now are costing us $150 billion a year. If we raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, $140 billion a year is going to go into wages, and the government is going to save $150 billion a year. So we're going to cut the number of people who are on government assistance and, and replace that essentially with wages from employers. And I'm in guessing order, that's why libertarians are all freaked out. It's like, in, oh my God, we want, we want more subsidies from the government in the form of welfare for these people who are working. I mean, you know, you know most of the people on food stamps are actually working working you didn't address any of my problems or my history or my facts with that statement and in fact the only way for you to have the conclusions that you're coming to uh, in that last statement not the cbo report because the cbo report does have interesting statistics on both sides but when you make the flat statements that you just made you have to hold the economic graph constant and the fact is is that if you stop people from learning a trade now they don't produce in the economy what they would produce in the future because they haven't what does that have to do with raising skill. the minimum wage if you raise the minimum that wage, has nothing you to do with the entry-level job no you, you don't what it is no your you entry-level jobs become fifteen dollars an hour you and what's uh, wrong with a fifteen dollar an hour minimum you know entry-level job 
Look, if you're making up the economy from scratch and you just want to wave a magic wand, then sure. Why don't you? We're not making up an economy from scratch. We're we're talking about raising the minimum wage to 25 percent less than it was in 1968. And 1968 was a pretty decent economy. So so that's your goal. Look, the fact is, no, my goal would be to raise it to twenty dollars an hour to take it back to where it was in 1968. Everybody knows that the numbers don't work. CBO just said it. No, everybody doesn't know that. I I suggest that you go over to the Economic Policy Institute, EPI.org, and look at their numbers. They ran these. They ran the same numbers based on the CBO study, and that and they're saying right up front. The CBO studies, uh, you know, our, our economy can afford a minimum uh, $15 minimum wage, and uh, you know the the here the the benefits of gradually 50 uh, phasing a $15 minimum wage by 2024 would be far work far reaching and would exceed the costs to the economy. And again, you know, the 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 fewer than 10% are teenagers, 58% of people working minimum wage are women. I don't know what you have against women, Charles. 60% are working full-time. I don't know what you have against full-time workers. 28% have children. Uh, well, are you opposed you what to I, parenthood? I'll tell you what I have on my side. The, re, the CBO report that you're citing says that the people that are going to be hurt are those 10%. You obviously don't care about them, but it also says that women are going to be the biggest ones hurt because those are going to be the jobs that are lost first. But you can ignore that part. Maybe that's the sheet that you lost. We're, we're talking. We're talking about a. About we're talking about a tiny doesn't. loss of jobs. You know, compared to the overall economy, it's it's, it's way less than one percent. And in exchange for that, you're getting massive economic stimulus. You're cutting. You're cutting the cost of government welfare programs, which are fundamentally subsidies to wealthy, largely white employers. Um, and 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 you're raising the standard. You're lifting. You're going to lift forty million people out of poverty with this, Charles. That is, that, is, that is untrue and not in the report, but this is Tom Hartman walking down the street saying, you have a job, you don't have a job, you have a job, you don't have a job. No, this That's is Tom Hartman saying that no employer like in America lot, should do business. I don't business. want you to have that power. My, this is Tom Hartman saying that if you can't afford to pay somebody $15 an hour, your business model sucks. <laughs> well, look, so you're saying Amazon's good because they are on this track. So Yeah, they're paying $15 an hour. They've got a business model that works. That uh, any company in America can do it seems to disagree with that. AOC didn't want it in New York. The fact is, is that businesses can pay what they should, what they can pay. And if people want those jobs, they should take them. So you want no minimum wage at all? I don't think that most most cities are paying above the minimum wage now. You want no minimum wage at all, though, right? We don't need a minimum wage. The minimum wage is actually a death wage. By the time they implement it, it's under poverty. Got it. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Charles Sauer, the president of the Market Institute. Marketinstitute.org is the website. Uh, Charles Sauer is his Twitter handle. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. Our book club selection today is Raghuram Rajan. It's titled The Third Pillar, How Markets and the State Leave the Community Behind. This is from the preface. We're surrounded by plenty. Humanity has never been richer as technologies of production have improved steadily over the last 250 years. And it's not just the developed countries that have grown wealthier. Billions across the developing world have moved from stressful poverty to a comfortable middle-class existence in the span of a generation. Income is more evenly spread across the world than at any other time in our lives. For the first time in history, we have it in our power to eradicate hunger and starvation everywhere. Yet even though the world has achieved economic successes that would have been unimaginable even a few decades ago, some of the seemingly most privileged workers in developed countries 
are literally worried to death. Half a million more middle-aged, non-Hispanic white American males died between 1999 and 2013 than if their death rates had followed the trend of other ethnic groups. The additional deaths were concentrated among those with a high school degree or less, and largely due to drugs, alcohol, and suicide. To put these deaths in perspective, it's as if 10 Vietnam Wars were simultaneously taking place, not in some faraway land, but in homes in small town and rural America. In an era of seeming plenty, a group that once epitomized the American dream seems to have lost hope. The anxieties of the moderately educated, middle-aged white male in the United States are mirrored in other rich, developed countries in the West, though perhaps with less tragic effects. The primary source of worry seems to be that moderately educated workers are rapidly losing, or are at risk of losing, good middle-class employment. And this has grievous effects on them, their families, and the communities they live in. It is widely understood that job losses stem from both global trade and the technological automation of old jobs. Less well understood is that technological progress has been the more important cause. Nonetheless, as public anxiety turns to anger, radical politicians see more value in attacking imports and immigrants. They propose to protect manufacturing jobs by overturning the liberal rules-based post-war economic order, the system that has facilitated the flow of goods, capital, and people across borders. There is both promise and peril in our future. The promise comes from new technologies that can help us solve our most worrisome problems like poverty and climate change. Fulfilling it requires keeping borders open so that these innovations can be taken to the most underdeveloped parts of the world, even while attracting people from foreign lands to support aging rich country populations. The peril lies not just in influential communities not being able to adapt and instead impeding progress, but also in the kind of society that might emerge if our values and institutions do not change as technology disproportionately empowers and enriches some. Every past technological revolution has been disruptive, prompted a societal reaction, and eventually resulted in societal change that helped us get the best out of technology. Since the early 1970s, we've experienced the Information and Communications Technology Revolution, the ICT Revolution. It built on the spread of mass computing made possible by the microprocessor and the personal computer, and now includes technologies ranging from artificial intelligence to quantum computing, touching and improving areas as diverse as international trade and gene therapy. The effects of the ICT revolution have been transmitted across the world by increasingly integrated markets for goods, services, capital, and people. Every country has experienced disruption punctuated by dramatic episodes like the global financial crisis in 2007-2008 and the accompanying Great Recession. We are now seeing the reaction in populist movements of the extreme left and right. What has not happened yet is the necessary societal change, which is why so many despair of the future. We are at a critical moment in human history when wrong choices could derail human economic progress. This book is about the three pillars that support society and how we get to the right balance between them so that society prospers. Two of the pillars I focus on are the usual suspects, the state and markets. Many forests have been consumed by books on the relationship between the two, some favoring the state and others markets. It is the neglected third pillar, the community, the social aspects of society that I want to reintroduce into the debate. When any of the three pillars weakens or strengthens significantly, typically as a result of rapid technological progress or terrible economic adversity like a depression, the balance is upset and society has to find a new equilibrium. The period of transition can be traumatic, but society has succeeded repeatedly in the past. 
The central question in this book is how we restore the balance between the pillars in the face of ongoing disruptive technological and social change. I will argue that many of the economic and political concerns today across the world, including the rise of populist nationalism and radical movements on the left, can be traced to the diminution of community. The state and markets have expanded their powers and reached in tandem and left the community relatively powerless to face the full and uneven brunt of technological change. Importantly, the solutions to many of our problems are also to be found in bringing dysfunctional communities back to health, not in clamping down on markets. This is how we'll rebalance the pillars at a level more beneficial to society and preserve the liberal market democracies many of us live in. The book, The Third Pillar, How Markets and the State Leave the Community Behind. Hey, ever wake up in the middle of the night sweating? I, it's a fairly common thing. It's because your bed and your bedroom don't really regulate the temperature. And our body goes through cycles as we sleep where it actually is generating or not more or less heat. And so what's comfortable at one time of night is not comfortable at another time of night. And now there's a bed that actually responds to your needs for, for cool or warm or whatever it may be. The bed is called the pod. It's from 8sleep, E-I-G-H-T sleep. It's the first and only bed with what they call a responsive surface technology. It's designed to keep you cool all night long. It's like, the pod is like the Tesla of beds. The pod dynamically adjusts each side of the bed to the ideal temperature for your body and changes it throughout the night. And science shows you can sleep deeper because of this, leading to optimal mind and body performance. You'll find that 8sleep is a company dedicated to building the most innovative solutions for sleep's biggest problems. And with the pod, they're delivering. You'll never have to suffer through sweaty nights ever again. If you're ready to beat the sweat and start optimizing your sleep, head to 8sleep.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. Try the pod for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup. They're already sold out of the first two batches, so they're going fast. For a limited time, get 150 bucks off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash Tom. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash Tom. On the line with us is our old buddy, Professor Steve Keen, the author and, uh, well, the economist, most importantly, and the author of the new book, Taking the Con Out of Economics. <laughs> Prof. Steve Keen, K-E-E-N.com is his website. Prof. is in Professor. Prof. Steve Keen, S-T-E-V-E. And his Twitter handle is also Prof. Steve Keen. Steve, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Tom. I think you're also now on Patreon, don't you? That's, uh, that's Patreon slash, uh, dot com slash Prof. Steve King. Okay, there you go. Patreon.com slash Prof. Steve King also. Um, so, uh, Steve, with your, uh, your beautiful Australian accent, sometimes you talk so fast that it's hard, I think, for some of our American listeners to understand absolutely everything you're saying. And what you're saying is so important that I'd like to ask you to kind of slow down just a little bit. Um, is our economy sure. weak and getting worse, or is it great and getting better? What's going on with the economy? Well, what I, you know, the current economy is doing what I expected to see it do after the financial crisis, which is, in the summarized in a simple phrase, turn Japanese. Uh, in other words, emulate what Japan went through since its bubble economy burst back in 1990. And what that was marked by was a period of uh, large-scale private sector deleveraging over 25 years, uh, where every time the economy appeared to revive under the stimulus that the government was giving it, they'd take away the stimulus, they'd put the rates back up again, and, oh dear, the economy would slow down once more and they'd go back and reverse the process. 
So that's what I see happening, not, not a serious crisis, but a period of, of what look like recoveries that stagnate too quickly under the influence of policy, where the policy is then reversed and the recovery begins again, wash and repeat for maybe the next 15 years. So in, instead of boom, bust, boom, bust, which we've been having since George Washington, and we're right now in the longest uh-huh. boom since, since that time, uh, you're suggesting that the Japanese have kind of pioneered a way to just kind of uh, muddle along, <laughs> basically? In a, in a sense, that's true, because what the Japanese have been doing, as we all know, is dramatically increasing the level of, of government debt. It's gone from about 40% of GDP to 240% of GDP across that period. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the thing everybody focuses upon. What's actually been driving the whole thing is private sector debt going in the opposite direction. So you had a bubble economy in Japan that began in literally they called it the bubble economy, began in 1980, a huge speculative binge on real estate and the share market, drove them both astronomically high, all driven by leverage. So over that period of time, I'm working roughly with my, my head here, but uh, the government, uh, sorry, private debt went from about 170% of GDP to 225% of GDP. Right on the end of 1990, literally the last day, the stock market started as a tank. And from that point on, people were reducing the level of private debt as well, most of the time. And that reducing of debt meant people were were using their deposit accounts to pay down their outstanding debt, which means credit was negative. And then the the government didn't know anything about this because they're trained by neoclassical economists. They don't understand the role of credit. So the economy would appear to revive under government stimulus, and then when it started to revive, they thought, oh, we can go back and reduce the stimulus again. When they removed it, the private sector went back to reducing its debt levels and the economy fell over. So that's what I'm seeing happening in the American data as well, from, from not quite as severe a high, a high level of private debt, but the same basic dynamic. So, uh, and, and just so people know, when you talk about leveraging and, and deleveraging, you're talking about basically acquiring debt and shedding debt or paying down debt. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. so uh, my understanding is, Steve, uh, we're talking with Professor Steve Keen, his new book, Taking the Con Out of Economics, um, that, you know, my understanding is that the, the uh, amount of individual consumer debt that we have right now the amount of individual, well, first of all, that, that uh, since 2014 or 2015, the economy would not have grown, the U.S. economy would not have grown at all had it not been for a combination of increased uh, leverage or debt in both the government sector, the corporate sector, and the individual sector. And that, number two, the levels of debt uh, in the corporate and the individual sector, and I, I frankly have no idea about the, the government sector, are... Uh, are, and and the levels of inequality right now are have already surpassed what they were in 1929. So, if we're at that 1929 threshold, is it that you know the the, the Fed didn't respond to the 29 crash appropriately, and that's why the depression was so severe? Or and and, and this time around they might be able to do it like the Japanese did, uh, you know, because we've learned from that. Or is it that? you know, actually, things are actually different than they were then, and, and, and those numbers are misleading. Yeah, well, if you go back to the Great Depression, uh, the level of government spending was of, of the order of one-sixth what it is now compared to GDP. So, uh, like these days, roughly speaking, most industrialised countries, including the USA, have a government sector which is about 30% of GDP. 
That all occurred during the Great Depression and the Second World War. Before that, it was about five, certainly no more than 10% of GDP. Hmm. So what it meant was that when there was a... And like, there was no unemployment insurance, for example, in 1929. Okay. So there were no stabilizers, basically, that the government is yeah, kind of the right. government spending and, and, and is sort of a, a buffer to it all. And then on top of that, the government, through things like unemployment insurance, has the ability to, to, to yeah. be a stabilizer. Yeah, I mean, you, see, you can think about it in terms of an air conditioning system. You know, the, uh, back in 1929, you could open the windows. Back in, uh, in two, 2007, uh, you had an air conditioning system. So the, the scale of capacity to change what's happening with the economic climate is much larger now than it was then, even if the government's not doing it intentionally. But, of course, there has been intentional policy as well, and that's been QE. And that's been an extremely expensive, uh, and extreme inequality increasing yeah, this way to quantitative easing. for the private, private economy. Right, this is this quantitative easing when you say QE. Um, yeah, so, easing, yeah. So if, if what you're suggesting, Professor Steve Keen, is that instead of boom and bust, we've now figured out how to have kind of uh, maybe a gradual downward slide in terms of the amount of debt in the economy, and but, but not anything that's going to be radical or dramatic, um, I would assume that what that means is that Unemployment will slowly go up, but not terribly. That uh, housing prices will stop, you know, increasing really dramatically. And in fact, I guess when you include rural housing prices, they haven't gone up as much during this last recovery than they have during previous ones. Um, mm-hmm. That that basically, you know, from from the from the point of view of a, of the average American, the average consumer, the average person, you know, who has a job or wants a job. Um, how do you how do you prepare for this? How do you understand this and prepare for this? And how would that be different than, for example, I mean, I know people right now who are trying to sell their houses thinking that we're at a market peak uh, and then they're going to rent for a year on the assumption that the, the market's going to collapse and they'll be able to buy a house for half the price that they just sold their house for. Um, are you saying those days are over? And if so, how do how do we respond to this this new world that you're describing? It's a, it's a problem, Tom, because uh, it, the scale of recovery really has been driven by government stimulus, both uh, conventional stuff and then also the uh, uh, quantitative easing. And on the quantitative easing, there's no limit for the Federal Reserve's capacity to pump money in in such a way that it actually affects uh, asset markets, particularly the share market. So uh, the downward vulnerability isn't there until the Fed's stop doing the stimulus. And then when it does, it doesn't have the reaction they expected. The, I, I see the stock market crash back at the end of last year as a, a result of the Fed going from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening, and rather than buying bonds off the private financial sector, selling bonds to them, taking money out of circulation, it coming out of like, the stock market sales and down goes the stock market, well, they instantly go back to quantitative easing again. So I think there's going to be a topsy-turvy world like that where the, effectively the, the government is using its fairly limitless capacity to stimulate the economy without being aware that's what it's doing. But isn't there a, there has to be a limit somewhere to this. I mean, Europe now has negative interest rates. You pay banks to hold on to your money. This has never happened in the history of you know 7,000 years of economics is my understanding. Um, how does this all end? Well, it isn't actually, it's not that private banks are paying you interest, uh, you know, negative interest or that they're giving you like a negative loan. It's the central banks that are putting negative interest rates 
on the uh, on the reserves of the of the private banks. You've mm-hmm. also got bonds being so oversubscribed that the yield is negative right. on the bonds. So it's all affecting the financial sector. Um, but it is unprecedented. There's no ways about it. This is the lowest level of, of interest rates in the history of the records of interest rates, which go back something over 3,000 years. So we've, we've never had an experience, even other previous social systems, uh, let alone under capitalism. So it is, is unprecedented. And it is something the government's got a limitless capacity to keep on doing. This is the point that modern monetary theory makes, but they don't make it in relation to this sort of behaviour. They're talking about what they think is desirable behaviour by a government. Mm. Um, but fundamentally, because the, the government creates the currency through the central bank, if the central bank decides to create, as it was doing under quantitative easing, a trillion dollars a year worth of cash that it uses to buy financial assets, that boots the, what, what Michael Hudson calls the fire sector, financial insurance and real estate, boosts that sector, and some of that money dribbles over into Wall Street, from Wall Street economy into the Main Street economy, which is part of where the fallen unemployment has come from. But that's... Uh, it, it's, it, it's got an unlimited capacity to keep on doing it. And if it, if it gets afraid of stock market crashes or house price falls, which of course have, uh, have happened, and then reverses direction to keep the asset markets going, then it can continue inflating those asset markets indefinitely as well. Hmm. Remarkable. Does that mean the stock market is going to go up forever? Well, it could mean. I mean, it, it, it's gone up, trebled or quadrupled from its low, right. and it's all been really driven by the level of money coming in from quantitative easing. There hasn't been the same level of speculative buying driving up share prices. And the old, uh, you know, one of the Wall Street adages is don't fight the Fed. Well, while the Fed's been doing this, people have been making a very nice killing out of, you know, very low volatility rising stock markets. I think, to me, I think this is this party is not going to be upset by what can happen in the economy. My expectation is this party is going to be upset by what happens with the ecology. The ecology? Oh, you mean global warming? I mean global warming. Wow. Okay, and that's a whole other conversation. Assassinate. Yeah. Yeah, Steve, we're going to have to have you back sometime to talk about that. Steve Keen, propstevekeen.com or patreon.com slash propstevekeen. He is Twitter handle propstevekeen. Steve, thanks a lot for dropping by. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Great talking with you. Even on our best days, a lot of us could use a little help with things like under eye puffiness or wrinkles or whatever. And and the old, you know, home remedies of tea bags, eh, nah, they just stain your skin. But what works is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet, wrinkles, or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself. Watch a real video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get my discount. That's TryPlexiderm.com with code TOM. Or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention Tom. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today on the Tom Hartman Book Club, we're reading from The Curse of Bigness, uh, Antitrust of the New Gilded Age by Tim Wu. 
Um, sounds kind of a dry title, but it's a pretty amazing book. This is from the, and it's a very small book. This is from the introduction. We are four decades into a major political and economic experiment. What happens when the United States and other major nations weaken their laws meant to control the size of industrial giants? What is the impact of allowing unrestricted growth of concentrated private power and abandoning most curves on anti-competitive conduct? The answers, I think, are plain. We've managed to recreate both the economics and politics of a century ago, the first Gilded Age, and remain in grave danger of repeating more of the signature errors of the 20th century. As that era has taught us, Extreme economic concentration yields gross inequality and material suffering, feeding an appetite for nationalist and extremist leadership. Yet, as if blind to the greatest lessons of the last century, we're going down the same path. If we learned one thing from the Gilded Age, it should have been this. The road to fascism and dictatorship is paved with failures of economic policy to serve the needs of the general public. Look at the global economy and witness the rule of concentrated oligopolies and monopolies in industries like finance, media, airlines, and telecommunications, just to name the most obvious. Firms whose size allows them to treat customers and competitors with impunity. Most visible in our daily lives is the great power of the tech platforms, especially Google, Facebook, and Amazon, who have gained extraordinary power over our lives. With the centralization of private power has come a renewed concentration of wealth and a widening gap between the rich and the poor. The concentration of wealth and power has helped transform and radicalize electoral politics. As in the Gilded Age, a disaffected and declining middle class has come to support radically anti-corporate and nationalist candidates, catering to a discontent that transcends party lines. A renewed economic nationalism around the world blames immigrant workers, foreign products, or elite conspiracies for the diminishment of the middle class. There is widespread anger at big business and how they treat customers, especially in concentrated or monopolized industries like insurance, pharmaceuticals, airlines, and other insensitive behemoths. Many fear Google, Amazon, and Facebook, and their power over not just commerce, but over politics, the news, and our private information. What we must realize is that, once again, we face what Louis Brandeis called the curse of bigness, which, as he warned, represents a profound threat to democracy itself. What else can one say about a time when we simply accept that industry will have far greater influence over elections and lawmaking than mere citizens? When the American pharmaceutical industry can raise prices by thousands of percent, confident the government will do little or nothing. When the middle class has no apparent influence on policies like health insurance, taxes, working conditions, housing, or other matters that determine how life is really lived. We must now face questions that have been ignored for more than a generation. Are extreme levels of industrial concentration actually compatible with the premise of rough equality among citizens, industrial freedom, or democracy itself? Can we create broad-based wealth and a sense of entrepreneurial opportunity in an economy dominated by monopolists? Is there just too much concentrated power in too few hands, with too much influence over government and our lives? The questions, I think, answer themselves. The main goal of this short volume is to see how the classic antidote to bigness the antitrust and other anti-monopoly laws might be recovered and updated to face the challenges of our times. For roughly a century, the antitrust law served in practice and theory as an anti-monopoly code that sought to limit excessive industrial concentration and to police monopoly conduct. 
By the midpoint of the last century, antitrust became widely understood in the, in the Western world as a necessary part of a functioning democracy, as the ultimate check on private power. Yet over the span of a generation, the law has shrunk to a shadow of itself and somehow ceased to have a decisive opinion on the core concern of monopoly. The law that the Supreme Court once called a comprehensive charter of economic liberty aimed at preserving free and unfettered competition no longer condemns monopoly, but has grown ambivalent and sometimes even celebrates the monopolist as if the anti and antitrust has been discarded. Most of what follows can be understood to center on the recovery of one principle, that in enacting and repeatedly fortifying the antitrust laws, the United States made a critical, indeed constitutional, choice in industrial and national policy. After a period of intense national debate, including the presidential election in 1912, where economic policy was the central issue, the nation rejected a monopolized economy and chose repeatedly over the decades to preserve its tradition of an open and competitive marketplace. The goal of antitrust law must be understood as respecting that choice, or as Louis Brandeis, the great prophet of a decentralized economy, put it, the antitrust laws answered the question, shall the industrial policy of America be that of competition or that of monopoly? What happened? The law is currently suffering from an overindulgence in the ideas first popularized by Robert Bork and others at the University of Chicago in the 1970s. Bork contended implausibly that, that the Congress of 1890 in exclusively intended the antitrust law to deal with one very narrow type of harm. The Curse of Bigness by Tim Wu. Bill in Clifton, New Jersey. Hey, Bill, what's up? One of the candidates could do really well if they just brought back the middle-class tax cuts that Reagan got away with, like being able to write off your interest, personal interest, especially with all the debt that people have these days. That's right. Before and, Reagan, you used to be able to, to deduct from your uh, taxes the cost mm -hmm. of interest on your credit card and on your, right. on, on your car loan, as well as your home mortgage loan. In fact, right. any interest and, that you paid for anything. Right, and, and you know, credit cards were like twenty percent in some places, but uh, yeah. uh, that, and then uh, he taxed. Um, um, he also taxed Social, Social Security. Security. Yeah, right, and unemployment insurance he taxed as well. Yes, but uh, anyway, they, someone should talk about bringing that back. My idea was that there should be a subsidy for American consumers who buy American goods, and the idea I had was that. If you're a company in the United States and you, pr you produce a, uh, uh, a piece that's at least 90% parts made in America and 90% made in America, that the, uh, uh, the government would give you a code that goes inside your uh, bar scan. So at the register, when you check out, you would get 5% less. And that money would be subsidized, you know, instead of those oil companies and stuff, uh, back through the states. It could take the place of a uh, sales tax or something. But uh, And uh, if you are a place that uh, uh, employs, in, it, it's, it, it employs in the United States 90%, you manufacture 90%, you get special tax uh, uh, incentives. And if the store 
denotes a certain part of the store to just American-made goods, they get a tax break on that area of the store. That's you know what I think might be a lot simpler, Bill. I, you know, I get mm-hmm. I get your suggestion. It's just uh, the the complexity of dealing with it may be uh, more than they could do in Louisiana, for example. Um, but uh, I mean, just because the state is so poor, it's been thrown into such poverty by Republican policies right. that they, they they have such a, a bad tax base. Um, but if we were to right now, there are standards for labeling on products. Uh, with regard to country of origin, uh, you know, if you buy a MAGA hat from from Trump on the on the internet, uh, it'll have a tag inside that says "Made in China." Um, right. If instead we were to change the rules on labeling so that the label has to be clearly visible on the product, number one, uh-huh. and number two. Instead of uh, saying the country of origin as the headline, essentially, the, the headline, that is the largest type on the label, would say either in large, bold letters, made in America, or not made in America, with N-O-T in all caps. And then below yeah. that, if it's not made in America, mm-hmm. below that in small type, it can say made in China or made in Vietnam or whatever. And if, if though, if, you know, I mean, the, and the reason, the, what gives me the idea for this is South Korea. Back in 1956, or no, 1965, excuse me. In 1965, uh, General Park uh, led a military coup and took over the government of South Korea. And at that time, South Korea was one of the poorest countries in the world. They had the, as President Obama pointed out in a speech he gave about five years ago, um, they had the same per capita income, $78 per uh, month per person, the same per capita income that Kenya did. And, you know, one of the poorest countries in the world. And what Park did, what General Park did when he took over is he created a national industrial policy. He put up massive tariffs on any imported goods. They started subsidizing their brand new industries. Samsung, which is now one of the largest electronics manufacturers in the world at that time, was exporting human hair for wigs and fish. That's what that, that was their business. And they built this giant industrial powerhouse. But one of the main ways that they did it, in addition to the import tariffs, is they, they started a public shaming campaign on anybody who used any kind of product that wasn't made in South Korea. And they did it with labeling, like I'm describing. Not specifically exactly like I'm describing, but uh, you know, similar to this. And uh, Chang, I'm forgetting his first name, but his last name is Chang. He's a professor at Oxford, a professor of economics, and he wrote a book called Pulling Up the Ladder, which was about how countries get rich and then how they pull the ladder up to prevent other countries from getting rich. And he tells this whole story of how South Korea became so wealthy in that book. So uh, I think you're onto something, Bill. I think it's a great idea, and thanks for calling in and, and suggesting it. Marlene in Spencerport, New York. Hey, Marlene, what's up? Tom, I, I think you're great. You have so much good to say. And there's another Tom who I never really appreciated until a couple of days ago. His name is Tom Friedman. Mm-hmm. He, he was on MSNBC. I can't remember if it was Larry O'Donnell or whoever. And he was talking about how the Democrats could quiet Trump's nastiness as well as raise a ton of money for the Democratic Party. He said that every time Trump says something really terrible, awful, or does something really terrible, awful, especially at his rallies, that Tom Perez should declare a marathon to raise money for the Democrats. 
He said, I think they could raise just a ton of money. I myself would donate. People could get $10, $15. And when Trump realizes, maybe, that what he's doing benefits the Dems, he'll shut up. I think it's already, I, you know, Marlene, I'm not going to get into Tom Friedman because I have my own problems with him. But um, I sure. think that, that actually what he's describing is actually happening right now. I went online really? yesterday and donated to Ilhan Omar. Now, you know, she doesn't represent me. She represents part of uh, you uh -huh. know, the Minneapolis area in Minnesota, as I recall. Um, uh, I've never met her. I don't know her. I, you know, I've kind of admire right. her work from afar. But um, uh, when Trump went after her, that was it for me. And so I went on sure. and I Googled her website. And, and one of the weird things, I typed, typed into Google Ilhan Omar, and the first thing that came up was married her brother, which was something that Trump said, which is oh, a slur yeah. and a lie yeah. that came out of right-wingers. The man that she's alleging was her brother that she did marry. She's on her second marriage. Um, and this was back when she was a refugee. Um, the, the man that she married uh, was actually born, he's three years younger than her, and her mother died at, when she was two years old. So it's not even physically uh -huh. possible that he was her brother. And But it's this slur that was made up. But in any case, I went on to Google and I, actually it was DuckDuckGo, but I think they're sharing you know, a database. And and found her campaign website, which is ilanomar.com. And, you know, I, I kicked some bucks her way yesterday. And uh, now I'm on her mailing list, which is fine. But um, sure. I, I, sure. I would recommend to everybody, you know, if, if he goes after, if he goes after uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, send her some money. If he goes after uh, Ayanna Presley, he, as he did, uh, you know, yesterday, send her some money. If he goes, I mean, you know, uh, Rashida Tlaib, send her some money. If he goes after Nancy yeah. Pelosi, you know, send some money to the DNC. Um, you know, I don't think Nancy Pelosi particularly needs the, the money for re-election. She's, you know, pretty solid. But particularly any right. of these... Uh, uh, you know, newer members of Congress, um, right. you know, and 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 don't discount the importance of sending them ten dollars. I'm I'm not talking. You don't have to send no. them two hundred bucks, you know, or a hundred dollars. Just ten bucks. I mean, it's just uh, every little bit helps. So, Marlene, that's great. Thank you so much for the call, and th well, thanks and, for the suggestion. Yeah. A lot of people don't know what the Republicans have done to hurt them, and nobody is saying that. They talk about all this big stuff, yeah. but they need to know about all the bills the Dems have passed. People don't know. I agree, and they it's because they, it's know. because the media doesn't talk about it. Marlene, thanks so much for the call, and, and and amen. And people don't know, and just like people don't know that one of the ways that Reagan raised taxes on middle class people was by saying you're going to have to pay taxes on your Social Security income if you you know when you retire, or even if you take disability, you're not going to be able to deduct the cost of your credit card interest payments any longer. You can't deduct the cost of interest on your student loan payments any longer. These were middle-class tax breaks that middle-class people used to have that Reagan did away with. And, you know, I, I think the vast majority of people, the vast majority of Americans, middle-class Americans in particular, have no idea that Republicans took these things away from them. And these are the sneaky ways that Republicans raise taxes on working people and fees as well, that they raise taxes and fees on working people in order to pay for the tax cuts, you know, to make up the lost revenue from giving giant tax breaks to the rich and the obscenely rich, the hoarders among us. Ed, watching Free Speech TV in Klamath Falls, Oregon. Hey, Ed, what's up? Oh, Tom, I've come across a magazine article about the divergence of productivity and wages that I thought might be of interest. Okay. 
it's a subject that seems to be close to your heart. You speak about it frequently. Yes. And uh, the people who wrote this article in uh, Fortune magazine, the July issue, the article is entitled Automation Shifting Fortunes. Two folks, one at MIT and one at uh, Oxford University, number crunching people. They crunch the numbers and they come to the idea that um, automation is causing the divergence of wages and productivity. Yeah, I would disagree and, with them, and I'm, I, I would be suspicious of anything that appears in Fortune magazine. I mean, it's a magazine of, by, and for the top 1%, Ed. Well, yeah, I know. You don't you know, There's like an old saying that says, you know, figures don't lie, but liars can figure. Uh, and I'm, yeah. I'm guessing that somewhere in that article you're going to find the word extrapolate. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it's, yeah, automation has had a huge impact on working class people. But mostly that impact, you know, just because a company gets a machine doesn't mean they're going to necessarily lower wages. They may lay people off. But they're not necessarily no, no, going to no, lower no. wages instead. But what lowers wages is the death of unions. Well, now, you, you think about it, though. Say, uh, the first thing you do is you replace the person that cost you $50 an hour. If you do that, then uh, the next thing you do is replace the guy that cost $40 an hour. The next thing you do is replace the guy that cost $30 an hour. Eventually, you get down to having everybody making seven and a quarter, and you don't bother to replace them because who cares? Yeah. Uh, I, I get that logic, and that logic actually makes some sense, Ed. That all assumes that you don't have a labor union in the workplace so that everybody is making roughly the same. I mean, that assumes a non-unionized workplace. So in a, in a unionized workplace where everybody's making the same, that logic is just simply not possible. Ed, thanks a lot for the call. Anthony in Philadelphia. Hey, Anthony. I feel that capitalism is a, was always meant to be a temporary system, a transitional system. And I think that that's the root cause of our issues. The fact that we can sit and have a discussion about automation, like the last caller, taking away our jobs and how automation, therefore, is a danger to us. In a way, what that is saying is we have to delay the development and implementation of our technology because of the economic system in which we express ourselves. Yeah, which makes no sense. It's a Luddite argument. Which, yes. You know, and there are several things. Uh, this weekend, I got into a discussion with a friend's father who told me that, well, if we transition to a resource-based economy, we will not get to enjoy technological advancement since uh, innovation is spurred most directly by the capitalist system itself, which I vehemently disagreed with. Hmm. And, and could demonstrate my perspective. My perspective is that it is the, the existence of an issue or inefficiency. Actually, I would, I would argue that innovation is spurred by the profit motive and by competition. And neither of those things are functions of capitalism. Capitalism is a system where, you know, people use capital. And, and uh, you know, both of those can exist in, in a relatively non-capitalist systems. If everybody was, a, you know, working for a co-op, for example, co-ops compete with each other. I mean, there's, there's lots of ways to do that. But I wanted to have a, a quick uh, talk, though, with Stephen Schuller. He's got a new book out called Big Greed, published by Strongarm Press. He's an attorney and author. Schuller, S-H-E-L-L-E-R.com is his website. Or welcome back. Yeah, hi. How are you, Tom? Good. So uh, what's the latest outrage here? Well, the latest outrage 
an editorial that just appeared in the New York Times editorial section on July 7th. It's as if I wrote it five or ten years ago. And to start it off, it says, Nothing typifies the failure of health care in the United States like prescription drugs. Americans pay more for their medications, including those developed in America with taxpayer dollars than residents of any other country in the world. Yep. It's astonishing. Yeah, we are, we are the country's, we are the nation, we are the world's village idiots. And, you know, this has become kind of the, the policy of the billionaires and the GOP is, is just keep, keep ripping off the middle class. Just keep ripping off Americans, you know, do it with pharmaceuticals, do it with hidden charges in your, on your hospital bills that your insurance company won't pay for. There's a thing in, in the paper today about how Marriott has these, they're called resort fees that, you know, they say, oh, the price of the room is $140, but actually there's a $30 resort fee in there. Well, what the hell's a resort fee? Oh, it's just something that they tacked on. Right, right. And the other interesting uh, part of all this is Trump in his campaign promised he was going to do something about drug prices. Well, so far, the only thing he's done is build a wall. Yeah. Uh, or try to build a wall. Well, drug prices you know, are actually substantially up since he became president. Gone and, way and they've up. Gone up. And they've gone and, up every uh, year since he became president. Yeah, the, the whole story of the drug situation is outrageous. Uh, and I talk about this in my book, and I talk about how I successfully uh, collected a lot of money from them, some billions of dollars for our government. However, uh, these were like uh, parking tickets compared to the money, amount of money the drug companies were making. Right. And it's just astonishing. In fact, drug makers are allowed to charge whatever they want here. Yep. It's not true in the rest of the world. Yep. And we're not even allowed, uh, our government, Medicare, Medicaid, is not allowed to negotiate with drug makers for their prices. Right. They have uh, to, Medicare officially has to say, you know, sir, how much shall I pay you? How much do you want? Yeah, right. yeah. And, then, and then the drug company says, this much. And then Medicare has to officially say, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. May I have another? Disgusting. And what's really serious is that at least half the drugs that are being ingested by our population are useless. And those that are useful, they have often hidden the risks and failed to warn about it. That's why. We probably have more casualties, I call them, in the United States than in the Vietnam, uh, Korean War, Iraq War, and Afghanistan put together primarily from the drug industry and particularly from Johnson & Johnson since they have so many subsidiaries. I mean deaths and serious injuries, Uh, thousands and thousands of people. But, uh, you know, the government seems to be allowing that to get away out of hand. And it's just a massaging. And Medicare is required to cover all drugs, no matter how poorly or how well they work. And that's astonishing. I don't know if you knew this, but there are two statutes that permit the federal government to override patents on FDA-approved medications, meaning that we're not obligated to to let them get away with this. And we used to do this in the 50s and 60s. Well, this was, this was how the generic drug thing emerged, wasn't it? Or, or Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, the generic drug thing oh. is another joke. Yeah. And the other serious problem is government money is used to invent the drugs, many of them. The government can also override the patent in those cases. Yeah. So what are we doing? Where's Trump? He makes these promises 
And, well, he, uh, he, he doesn't care what's, the, uh, you know, it, it, what Trump has figured out is that it doesn't matter what's real. What matters is what people believe is real. And so if he comes out and says, we're rolling out a policy to reduce prescription drug prices, that's all people hear. And, you know, right. and they don't know. And, and the majority of people in the United States probably, you know, their, the cost of their drugs is not crippling them. Um, probably a slim majority, but nonetheless. And so, you know, they're not paying attention. So Stephen Scheller, uh, the author of uh, Big Pharma, Big Greed, what is, the, what is your top recommendation for how we can get involved and what we can do about this? My top recommendation is to get out, register and vote, and vote for anybody but Trump. Yeah. They can vote for a goldfish, they'd be better off. But yeah. more importantly... Um, you know, the only reason that they're holding power is because of, of hate and misogyny and lies. And these lies extend, you know, to pharma, as you write about Stephen Scheller in your book, uh, Big Pharma, Big Greed, and, and pretty much everything else. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Stephen, I got to run, but thank you so much for dropping by. All right. Thank you. Good talking with you. The website is Scheller.com, S-H-E-L-L-E-R.com. John in Las Vegas, Nevada. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Well, hey, Tom. How you doing? Great. Uh, speaking of the uh, 2020 elections, I looked up on Wikipedia about the swing states, mm-hmm. and it turns out that the removal of the federal state tax deductions out of the about 15 states, only two states did not have their taxes increased. So out of the 15 states, 13 had their tax returns right uh, so the question is whether the people in those states who have seen their Mm -hmm. state income taxes go up as a result of the trump's tax cut realize that their state tax income taxes went up or at least their the deductibility of their state income taxes vanished so so they they lost that deduction on their federal income taxes whether they will realize that that was the result of the trump tax scam or whether they're going to blame the state for it right um well they're well, they noticed that. I mean, their taxi, well, the tax refund got really chopped up, and a lot of it. A lot, well, according to TYT, a lot of people did notice and did recognize that it was because of the, the GOP uh, tax tax. Scam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's that's interesting. I mean, that that yeah, would that, be that's good and, news. And I would say, f- you know, for states like New York and California that really took a hit. Frankly, I think that when they mail out their tax information, they should point this out. They should say, you know, the budget reconciliation and improvement of the economy bill or whatever the, the Republicans called that damn thing um, yeah. actually made it impossible or made it harder for you to deduct your state income taxes from your. You can't deduct anything over $10,000. So, so if you're paying more than $10,000 in state income taxes, which is mostly wealthy people, but still, if you're paying more than that, you have no deduction. They should point that out. John, thanks for the call. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.